This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 3rd of October 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my somewhat sniffly co-host, Jon. Ah, you've got to keep that secret. We big data people are never sick, we're never ill, we're 100% active, working, productive people. Apart from when we're ill. <laughs> Yeah, but that's in the small print. Nobody reads that anyway. Okay, that's okay then. That's fine. Yeah, I'm sniffling, but how's traveling, Dave? Because uh, we did a <laughs> traveling episode a long time ago, but you keep on traveling. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I went on holiday traveling, which was good, and we did an episode about traveling, and then I haven't stopped traveling since. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, I have been traveling a lot. I still have some travel ahead of me, uh, but I'm hoping uh, to get a little bit of a respite from travel coming up. So, uh-huh. yes. Lots and lots of traveling places, talking to exciting people, doing interesting things. And still doing a weekly podcast. I know. It's magic, isn't it? (laughs) If only. (laughs) (laughs) So this week, news episode. Indeed. And we have some. Uh, We have some. I know I have some, but you have some too. We do. Everybody has some. My goodness gracious me. Let's do it then. Yeah, let's see. I'll go first. Uh, mine are a bit uh, Spark heavy to, uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Got two Spark uh, articles and then a little fun one which I'm going to talk about last. First one is called Spark Performance Tuning, a checklist by uh, somebody at Zero Gravity Labs who apparently wants to remain anonymous because uh, the article is signed Zero uh, Labs. Can't help it. <laughs> and uh, so it's actually, if you look at the very bottom... I, I don't look at people's bottoms. Sorry, don't do that. Uh, well, well, you should do, because <laughs> names are called out. Uh, Tarina yes. and Danny yes. are the authors. Tarina, Casini, and Danny Lou. Well, good to know, because they did a nice little blog there. And when you read about things like uh, Spark Performance Tuning, your first, um, I, I mean, my first thought is, how do I tune my Hadoop cluster to do Spark? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not what this uh, article is about, actually. This is how you would tune your Spark uh, script itself, your Spark program, it's program itself. And it's actually calling out a number of things. They also nicely, uh, sh- at the beginning, tell you where they got their information. So they have some links to the books and uh, how-tos they've used to collect this information, mm-hmm. which is always a nice thing. And then they just talk about four or five different uh, little thingies which you can actually use in your Spark uh, executable to make things run faster or tuned to your uh, workload. Uh, First thing they talk about is uh, data serialization, where you can actually uh, substitute. I mean, it's all based on Java uh, at the back end, of course. And Java is a very modular language. And by default, your Java, if you're using the Oracle one or the Open Java one or whatever version is out there at the moment, it'll get bundled with certain components. And it is actually possible to uh, swap components out. And uh, listeners might actually remember that when we had the guys from Sarge on, that one of their uh, things they did to make their stuff run faster was to change the garbage collector. Mm-hmm. And this uh, blog is actually more in that vein. How can you change your uh, Java executable by changing your Java uh, executable JRE, JDK setup, let's say. And so the first one is data serialization, where they're talking about something called the Cairo serialization, which is faster and more compact. I mean, something I never heard of 
So uh, it's a very interesting thing to know. They also talk about the garbage collection itself, where they also give you some. Uh, they also give you nicely the uh, name of the module you need to use, and if uh, if necessary, if if uh, if applicable, what kind of uh, command line arguments to use to make it change. So mm-hmm. the garbage collector, I'm not entirely can't immediately find back which ones they're recommending here. Same thing for memory management, where you can actually do some compression in there and change the. Uh, the fraction of compression in there. Now, all of these things, of course, are things you have to test and try out and see if it actually makes a difference for you. Because mm-hmm. it's always quite, um, how do you say, uh, workload dependent. Yeah. And they also tell you in the, the blog that, yeah, try to know what you're doing before you change this stuff. Because it can really impact your, uh, your job. Uh, the last ones are less the uh, less technical because uh, these first three ones are really about the Java uh, uh, JDK itself, or JRE, I should say. The bottom ones are about partitioning and parallelism, and that's more about how your RDDs are being uh, spread out over your cluster and uh, which uh, Spark functions you should not try to use too much because they are quite heavy in resource use and stuff like that. So things like minimizing shuffles on joints and avoiding group by key, but those things are less new, I think, to the people who are using Spark. However, if you're just starting out with Spark, it's definitely a good read. Uh, I'm a bit... Uh, I would have liked it better if they put the bottom two at the top and the top three at the bottom. Because <laughs> now, <laughs> if, you, if you're a Spark person, you get into this blog and you read about Java things, which you might not know about or like or see as your responsibility, even. The bottom ones, on the other hand, are really... yeah things you can do in your scripting itself so if they change it around it would have been from a from a data scientist point of view from not as complicated to technical complicated which is a nice yeah. way of uh, going through it but i'm assuming that they have the other mindset the other way around i thought the only thing that i would say about this particular post is that i found it a little bit um a little bit difficult to understand mm-hmm what the impacts yep. are likely to be from some of these. I mean, it's all very well saying, you know, understand what you're doing before you start tweaking yep. these things, but they don't give um, sort of any explanation of if you start to see this behavior, yep. then try pulling this lever, mm-hmm. which I think is, that's to me, that's the really, really valuable bit. Because if you see, if you see something you and you're new to it, you literally have no idea yep. what, uh, what dial to fiddle with, what lever to pull, uh, what config variable to 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 change. Um, I, I I certainly appreciate a large uh, try all of these fabulous things, or these are all the fabulous things you can play with, but it, it it's missing that sort of that that last bit of value add. Yeah, yeah, well, they do have at the bottom the other part where they have two things about if you have memory out of memory errors, then you can do this. Yeah. So, so there's a little bit there, but you're right. And for me, it's basically because the, the their target audience is not the, I just started out with this thing, but yeah. I have something, I know what Spark does, and I've run to some kind of uh, bottleneck, something is slowing everything down, I've tried to look at my code already, and the, f- the last two things about the parallelization, the RDD stuff, you should have already done at that point, but what's the next point? And at mm-hmm. that point, you should have enough handles here to look at more things you can try. And I also think it's very hard to have a if this, then that uh, mm-hmm. article because it's impossible to predict what people do. And certain 
um, symptoms, certain problems, it's it's never it's very hard to have a one to one do yeah. this then that. So I, I appreciate what you're saying, and you're right. It would be very nice to have a kind of a flow chart. If problem one, then do this. If problem two, <laughs> do that, and so on. That would be perfect. Would be great. But if that existed, that would be you could automate that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in that case, I would expect Spark to just do it out of the box. Yep. This is more for me. Uh, I mean, where I am in, in my Spark career, let's say, I, it's kind of fun to just have a little over, overview here of things you can change. The garbage collection I knew about, the other two I had never heard about. Well, maybe I heard about them, but I've never really consciously thought about, oh, yeah, I have to take that into account, or maybe that could be something that works. So I agree with your uh, uh, your uh, uh, remark there, but I still mm-hmm. think it's a nice, uh, a nice overview. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay, on to the next piece of news then. Yes, your turn. Um, so I'm a corporate shill this week, as yeah. <laughs> both of my both of my news snippets are HortonWorks news. So apologies to that, but um, you're in uniform, aren't you? Well, HortonWorks is doing some interesting stuff. What can I say? Um, so first off, uh, blog post by Simon Ball um, announcing the release of uh, the. Homework cybersecurity package. Uh, actually, it's not package. It's platform. A typo there in the blog post. Um, uh, well, version 1.3. And this is, um, we've talked about Metron before, mm-hmm. um, which Apache is a major Metron, component. Right? It is Apache Metron. Um, we've talked about it a number of times before, and it is one of the uh, one of the key components of the Homework cybersecurity platform. But um, you know, the, some of the interesting things that have come with this release, there's a, a new alerts UI that comes with it. Um, there's a whole host of, of performance improvements. Um, and this is the, the sort of the first release that I think people are basically considering this to be fully fully GA at this point. You know, wider adoption is expected. And uh, it, it's starting to gain some, some really interesting traction. Um, we'll have a, an upcoming episode where we talk a little bit about the uh, the Sydney uh, DataWorks Summit, where we had uh, some exposure to what organisations are doing in production with HCP. But uh, yeah, really, really good news um, for anybody interested in uh, the 1.3 release. Honestly, the best place to go, and we'll put a link in the notes, is the uh, the documentation for the 1.3 release. Um, but yeah. Nice, nice to see these kind of solutions progressing. And uh, yeah, well done, the Metron team. Yeah, I know that you've been kind of involved with uh, Metron a couple of months already. I mean, involved, you've been interested and uh, keeping an eye on it. Uh, This HCP versus Apache Metron is, uh, I mean, if you look at the HTTP uh, release from Hortonworks and the Apache Hadoop stack, if you like, uh, everything is similar. I can actually build my own HTTP from pure Apache stuff and I wouldn't be missing much, I think, unless, of course, all the testing to make sure the versions work together. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the components. If you're comparing HCP and Apache Metron, is Apache Metron part of HCP? It is HCP. And if it's just a part of, what are the other parts? So at the moment, it it very much is uh, HCP. There are a few things that differ between the Homework Cybersecurity Package release and the Apache Metron release, uh, and those are mainly things that 
certainly will get upstream um, at some point, but have been fast tracked to 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 make the the release. Okay. You know, um, but the idea is that um, you know further components may well land into this platform um, over a period of time. Um, so it may not always just be uh, Metron. There may be other elements that arrive in here. It's a bit like the uh, data flow thing, where it, it originally yeah. was just NiFi, and now you have Storm in there and something called SAM. Exactly, exactly. Okay. I mean, it, it's essentially um, the HCP 130 release is Apache Metron release 041. Why make it so difficult? <laughs> yeah, what can I say? Just lots of numbers, and they're all good. Now, just thinking a bit deeper here, um, the core of HCP, or let's say the core of Apache Metron, is a Hadoop cluster. Correct? Incorrect? So, let's say yes or no. I'll, I'll ask on. I'll ask on. Okay. Let, let's let's start off with yes and see where the conversation goes. <laughs> so, next question. That's where you can expand upon. Is uh, so if what if I have an HCP cluster and I want to make it HCP, what should I do? So, uh, you will need a variety of different components as part of your existing environment or of your new environment. You'll need to be using um, Storm, Kafka, Spark, HDFS. Um, what else do we use? Uh, obviously, Zookeeper, which is a prerequisite for all of those other things anyway. Um, do we use anything else? Um, some sort of uh, indexing layer, so Elasticsearch or uh, Solar. Um, still a choice between the two, because I know originally the old old Metron, before it was called Metron, used Elastic, and then it was kind of moved over to Solar. Now it's just so pluggable? It's still, uh, so it's still... Um, the reality is today it's still very much um, Elasticsearch is first class citizen. Okay. Solar is still there um, as a as an option, and is we, we're certainly moving towards getting them equal. Oh, okay. uh, but at the moment, Elastic is probably still the favourite, and I think the reality is that that comes down to you know, the majority of paying customers that we've engaged so far have mm-hmm. been uh, existing Elasticsearch customers as well. So it's just been, that's you know, that's what we've prioritized. So does it mean you run Elastic on top of your Hadoop cluster? You have a second Elastic cluster next to it? No, you have a set, you have Elastic environment alongside. alongside the, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the way that the way that Metron works is you've got data flowing through your storm topologies, um, config-driven storm, so... Um, taking its config out of Zookeeper, so you can tweak and change things without needing to restart the storm topologies. Um, this also means that uh, at the end of it, various enrichment and all sorts of other exciting things go on, and then data gets indexed out to you know your hot indexing layer okay. and into HDFS. Um, mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll typically have a um, a smaller window of data in in the in the indexing layer, something like around three months, and then you'll have um, you know twelve months maybe in in hot HDFS and another twelve months in sort of cold HDFS using HDFS tiered storage or something like those lines. Okay, so is the Elasticsearch Solar component then mostly for? Uh, querying, looking at dashboarding. This is also because just for people that don't know, uh, yeah. Metron is basically a uh, find weird, uh, unnor- abnormal things in a event stream. 
So is the Elasticsearch part more of a, on the back end, of the front end, I should say, looking at what it's doing, or does it actually also have a component in the detection uh, stream? No, it's very much that, you're right, it's very much that dashboarding, okay. analysis, um, reporting side of things. Yeah. So one of the things that's uh, arrived with the HCP 130 release is this new alerts UI. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's come with, so it's essentially, it's a brand new um, web-based UI designed specifically for cybersecurity, um, security operations center analysts, so SOC analysts. Yep that um, allows them to display alerts, search through alerts, um, save searches, configure alerts in various different filters and that sort of thing. So it allows them to start slicing and dicing data that's coming from you know a wide variety of different sources, correlating it together far more easily. That is actually um, communicating through a sort of an interface or a shim layer uh, that will that goes down to either elastic or solar. So, one of the, yeah. the pieces about having this interface layer is, it also means that we can add at a later date. Well, say you're running this 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 query, you're doing this interaction across your your data in in your index layer. Well, you know, wouldn't it be nice to run then the same thing, probably powered by Spark or something like that down onto your HDFS layer as well. Sure, response times will be longer, but then you'll get a far more uh, detailed, rich yeah. P- picture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that that's one of the things that's come in the in the one point three release. Uh, the whole dashboarding thing is that a Kibana dashboard then, or is it also an API that can I, I can I don't know put in an Agios probe to alert people when something goes wrong. Uh, at the moment, it's it's sort of plugging into. Um, yeah, if you're using Elastic, then yes, yeah, so you'd be you'd be plugging in Kibana to that and dashboarding on that. If you're using Solar, then you'd be banana. plugging uh, Banana on top of that. Exactly. Well, Solar also works with Kibana these days, doesn't it? It worked with older versions. I don't know that it works with the newer newer versions of Kibana. Okay. Well, I'm actually interested in this, so I'm going to ask more about this. Uh, you've mentioned other component Storm. Mm-hmm. Um, has there been any discussion in the Metron team for, uh, on Storm versus Heron? Because, uh, as you all know, Twitter a couple of years ago dumped Storm for their new stuff, Heron. And actually, Heron got incubating Apache status uh, very recently, though the incubating page is still quite empty. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, I mean, as long as it wasn't Apache, I can understand that uh, bigger enterprises stay away from pure open source because the Apache let's say, trustability mark isn't on there yet, but now mm-hmm. that they're becoming incubating, has there been any discussion in the teams that you are aware of? Or? Not that I'm aware of. Um, there are always new and exciting um, streaming engines, all sorts of big data engines uh, around the corner and upcoming. And I think the the focus has really been um, using stuff that is tried, tested, um, well understood, and honestly, uh, hardened at significant scale across a wide range of different use cases. Yeah, and all of Alpha Heron, so nah, well, try again. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But how many no. organizations and people have experience using Heron? Yeah, I mean, you're right, because Heron <laughs> at the moment is used heavily by Twitter, and as yeah. far as I know, nobody else. Yeah. So yeah. that's probably the reason that they're only now going into incubating, because only now people are grouping together to do something more with it. So. Uh, yeah, st- I mean, going into incubating status is, is that that's where you start to build that that real community yeah, yeah. around it, isn't it? And I can say a long time in incubating. If you look at Impala, for instance, that's been in incubating since 2015, I think. Wow, I didn't know that, actually. 
I assumed that I assumed that had popped out of incubating. Nope, as far as I can tell, I looked this morning. Still incubating. Mm. Okay. Okay. Well, Apache Metron and HCP. I mean, acronyms are there for a reason, I guess. Just don't know what the reason is. <laughs> but uh, it's definitely something that's worth keeping in, in mind because the whole you know, cybersecurity thing is getting more and more important with all of the data breaches and... Uh, it almost it almost seems like there's a new one every week at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, and of course, I'm not sure if actually I'm not. I'm wondering if there's actually more breaches, and there probably are, or if it's just the fact that there's more of a um, governmental pressure on the uh, requirements to make public the breaches that we get more information about them. Because it's the thing about if you don't know about it, it doesn't exist, and now people, they have to yeah. tell about it. Yeah, so, people can't sweep it under the covers anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and with GDPR coming, it's going to be even harder. Yeah, yeah, and and it's going to start getting a lot more expensive as well. I, if you don't do it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I I think it's probably a bit of both. I think that um, I think attackers are getting more sophisticated, mm-hmm. and attacks are getting more sophisticated. Uh, but yeah, I think there's also an element of um, some of these breaches um, we just wouldn't have heard about in the past. Yeah. And as you say, governmental pressure, regulation. Um, in fact, I was reading an article this morning about. Um, I think it was um, it was some legislation that was coming in uh, in New York that was focused around um, cybersecurity governance, and they were basically talking about the fact that this this sort of legislation, if um, if sort of proved successful, could start to be the the gold standard for. Um, for cybersecurity legislation, it could be something that gets rolled out wider. Okay. So, interesting, interesting that um, we're starting to see organise or we're starting to see governments properly react to this. Albeit, you know, it's a bit like closing the door after the horse is bolted. <laughs> um, but you know, the it's the aim is to protect and to attempt to prevent tomorrow's breaches. You can't do anything about uh, anything that's already happened, but try and uh, make make things more secure for the future. Yeah, but it's also the fact that the tools are lacking at the moment too, because you talked about the more uh, sophisticated uh, breaches. I don't think you can actually see those happening because we don't have the tools for it. Metron is one of the first ones that I know of that can do this at this large scale. All the other stuff, I mean, I used to work at the data center, uh, we had a front, uh, yeah, security device from one of the big iron uh, vendors, mm-hmm. and it actually had to subsample because it just couldn't get, uh, it wasn't able to do the packet inspection on the whole in, in ingest we did. Yeah, I think this is. So I think there there are two parts to the the sort of the Metron and cybersecurity story. I think one of them is. Um, it's 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 very similar to the the conversation that you know, big data vendors have been having around EDW forever. You know, Metron isn't necessarily it's, it certainly isn't targeted at replacing you know, organizations' existing SIEM platforms, IPS, IDS. You know, any of those kind of tools or technologies. It's aimed to take feeds from all of those because. As you say, like everybody has security tools and technologies, but often the problem is that all they've got is a bunch of separate silos. And for anybody that's been working in the data lake 
uh, area, it's, it's going to start to sound very, very familiar because that's exactly what the data lake was there. Um, the concept was there to sort of get around in the first place. Bring all that data into one place, give you a, a, a more accurate, more complete view of um, of what's happening in the organization. In this particular case, it it's sort of focused more around giving you a more complete view of the cybersecurity risk that you're up against. Um, the other thing, I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, attacks becoming more uh, more complicated, but it, it's also the signals are getting smaller. You're seeing, um, you know, advanced persistent threats, um, people sort of gaining access through a variety of different ways into networks, in, sorry, into organizations' networks, and then essentially remaining dormant for large periods of time. Um, the average organization's sort of security silos, based on conversations I've had with you know, a bunch of different customers over the last 18 months or so, is around about three months. Mm-hmm. The average um, duration uh, that a breach goes undetected is about eight months. Yep. You know, what, what, does, <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> By the time the, the breach is detected, people have got no idea you know, when it got in, how long it's been there. Okay. So. Yeah, it's 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 a it's interesting that it, it it is basically a typical big data problem, and Metron is doing some interesting and you know very unique and novel things to try and solve that. Um, but you know, at its core, it's big data. Yeah, which is why it's based on a Hadoop cluster. Indeed, there's always a reason for these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, HCP one point three. Try it today. Maybe we'll have a. Maybe we'll have a. Um, a, a full-on Metron episode. I'll get some of the engineering team on, and we can talk Metron. Yeah, yeah, it would be good because I know I have a lot of questions about it. Because I mean, people are also asking me about this uh, security thing, and GDPR is really putting this into a limelight. And okay, Metron is perhaps not directly GDPR related, but still, GDPR makes people think or makes them conscious about security issues, and then this also becomes part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, one of the elements of GDPR is you've got to, you've you've got to have information about the breach itself, and you know the the duration, how it happened, what happened, and you know, so metering is definitely a part of that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I don't see about GDPR is, uh, or, I mean, the, the the one the one loophole in there is that it says that if you have a breach, you have to make it public and have all the data behind it to back it up and see where it came from. Mm-hmm. But it starts with if you detect a breach. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there's no actual push to make people detect breaches. But of course, it's impossible to put in legislation because, yeah, it's impossible to, <laughs> to guarantee I will catch every breach in my system because, yeah, yeah, these hackers get more sophisticated just as the software detection tools get more sophisticated. Yeah. But uh, at, at the end of the day, I mean, I would almost think you'd be scared to actually find a breach because you have all of this stuff to happen afterwards. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and maybe that's what we'll see happen. That will be uh, yeah, that'll be somewhat scary. Uh, yeah, and I mean, well, it's, people will start doing that. I mean, the big ones won't be able to do. That. If you look at a Facebook or a Twitter or something like that, they they have so much troubles already that they get in front of uh, government uh, inquiry boards because they have to look at Russian involvement with stuff, whatever. <laughs> but the smaller companies, I mean, the smaller banks, uh, insurance companies, things like that, uh, governments themselves, because uh, the, the, I saw articles somewhere that the amount of government-related security breaches or data, uh, privacy data breaches, 
this year alone has already exceeded last year's total. Jeez. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, every small community, every small, uh, I don't know what the English word is for small cities, uh, villages, let's say, uh, yeah. they also need to have this stuff in place or become part of a larger thing. But becoming part of a larger thing, it's the honeypot principle, right? The bigger you mm-hmm. are, the more interesting you are for the hackers. So, uh, mm-hmm. what to do, what to do. Yep. <sighs> the future is bright for cybersecurity. I think so. Certainly the future is bright for people selling cybersecurity <laughs> solutions anyway. <laughs> oh, dear. Mm. Oh, well, moving on. Indeed. Talk Ooh. to us about Spark scheduling. Uh, yes, not much, actually. It's a smaller blog, this one by Russell Spitzers. And it's uh, it doesn't really have a title, but the first subtitle is called How the Spark Scheduler Works. And it's actually a nice article, which I haven't understood completely, I must say, because I have to read it a couple of times more and do some more digging. But what it's about is uh, answering the question of how does Spark decide where to run a certain uh, query, a certain piece of your uh, prediction, whatever it may be, because mm-hmm. of data locality. Because we always say that Spark loads everything in memory, so data locality from disk doesn't matter anymore, does it? That being said, you can also have your RDDs reside in Spark uh, storage or other kinds of backends. And there are actually a couple of things you can put in your Spark, uh, not in your own Spark program, but in how these connectors are created, what data locality means. And for people that are a bit deeper into Spark... This is definitely not something for people that are just starting out with Spark, but we're a little bit deeper in and are actually wrestling with this, okay, how can I take advantage of the concept of data locality with this connector? Mm-hmm. This is a nice little article that gives you some uh, some hooks, some handles to start digging into this further. So one of the things that I... <laughs> I have. I definitely haven't fully grasped the uh, the detail of this um, of this particular post. One of the things, one of the parts that I found a bit curious was they were talking specifically about um, uh, Kafka RDDs with Spark, mm-hmm. and uh, Spark partition should be getting data from the same machine hosting that Kafka topic. So it. Is is this one of the elements of thing you were, you were talking about where other storage options are available? Uh, well, it's it's the connector thing again. I haven't really grokked this one myself, so I may be wrong. And if I'm wrong, then uh, Russell, your name friend, I would say, uh, please correct us. But what I'm thinking is the delayed execution of Spark, the lazy execution that Spark does. When I make mm-hmm. my little uh, flow of analytics. I will start with, okay, my data is originally coming from a CSV file, from an HBase file, from, in this case, a Kafka stream. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, I will start doing uh, aggregations, <laughs> predictions, whatever I'm doing in my Spark thing, and I will do a transformation that actually makes it execute. And at that point, Spark knows I have to do all this stuff so I can create my directed acyclical graph. Yeah, I used a dark acronym, good. <laughs> and it has to decide, okay, which of these components am I going to put where now? And at that point only, we'll look at your source, in this case Kafka, and see where these are. And since your Kafka can be a cluster, 
It will mm -hmm. also have locality of the little uh, topics and then being able to put the execution to the locality of where this events of this part of the events of your Kafka topics reside. That's at that point that it works. So again, I'm not entirely clear about it either, but that's how I would at the moment put it in my head. Is that kind Fair of, enough. is that kind of clear? <laughs> uh, maybe. Because <laughs> it's just the fact that if you would just do, uh, take data from this Kafka stream, okay, so we'll just take the data from the Kafka stream. But Spark doesn't do that. It only does that once it knows what you're going to do with the data. Mm. So it can actually do intelligent decisions on how it's going to get the data from your, uh, data, from your data source. And if that data source is distributed and it's distributed on the same nodes where your uh, Spark stuff is going to run, it can actually optimize its workflow to make sure, just like, just like it's in MapReduce and Hive and all the rest stuff, that it doesn't need to needlessly copy data over. And what this uh, little article talks about actually is when should your Spark uh, decide to wait for local to become available? Because if you have your data, uh, if you have a lot of your parts of your data on one node and three parts of your uh, Spark flow need data from that node, it can, oh, and let's just simplify that the node has one CPU. It's mm -hmm. simplification. Then the first of those can run there, but then the other two know, okay, my locality is this node, but it's busy. It's not available. Should I wait till it becomes available and take advantage of data locality or decide to use another free course somewhere else and have the data move to that node? And one of the things you can set in your, in your program actually is how long this wait time should be. And he actually says at the, bo the bottom of the article, who decides locality, preferred location. No, I was going to talk about something else. In the conclusion part, he talks about this spark.locality.wait, where some people put it at zero, which mm -hmm. means that, yeah, it will just go do what it's all your little spark things will start running immediately, but you'll have more uh, crosstalk, let's call it that. It's not really crosstalk, but more data movement on your cluster. Mm -hmm. And other people say, let's put it on infinite because I want to make sure my data doesn't get copied. And I can assume if the data blocks you need to copy would be very big, which doesn't often happen in Spark, but I can imagine that, that, that everything is possible. In those cases, making sure it doesn't uh, move that data, but just waits until CPUs become available. And if in the same uh, time you make sure, at the same time you make sure that your data is very granularly distributed across the cluster, then that will give you a better result. Yeah, it's a fun article. It's a subject I hadn't really thought about much myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, just like the other one I was talking about, it's again uh, directed at the more experienced Spark users, perhaps. If you're just starting out, this will really be uh, Chinese to you. Yep. Unless you're Chinese and it's English. Because I'm assuming Chinese people know Chinese oh. very well. Or possibly Dutch. Uh, nobody knows Dutch. Even the Dutch people don't know Dutch. That's why we all have exactly. dialects. <laughs> But uh, again, for me, it's a bit of a, well, I wouldn't say eye-opener, but it's a nice little, oh, I didn't know that. Let's see if I can play with this next time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, as always, links in the show notes. All right. Should we talk about some NoSQL? <sighs> do we have to? Yes, we do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> second, uh, second Hornworks blog post. Again, sorry. Just, yeah. you know. You didn't go far out to the door this, day, this, this time, did you? No, I didn't. I just I just peeked my head out, saw two things, grabbed them. That was it. No. So Apache HBase versus Apache Cassandra on SSD in a cloud environment. Um, this was a, a benchmark blog released September 14th, 2017. Um, some work by Will Zhu. And 
it 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 is exactly what it says on the tin. Um, it's a set of interesting, I think, I think anyway, um, <laughs> benchmarks. And the nice thing is that they vary the workload uh, between um, sort of going from update heavy, and they give sort of um, the kinds of use cases that that would. Uh, that would be applicable to so a session store or recording recent actions um, workload b is read mostly so that's the sort of use case of uh, photo tagging data labeling um, the next one is read only so sort of user profile caches news newsfeed caches um, read latest is the next one which is sort of for user status updates uh, workload e is short ranges uh, and the use case here is threaded conversations. And then the final one is workload F, which is read, modify, and write. And the use case there is an activity store or sort of user databases. Um, so for those that, that aren't familiar with um, HBase and Cassandra, the the typical, if you go and sort of look up, you know, Wikipedia or, you know, any other high-level sort of conversation on HBase versus Cassandra, the, the typical message will be uh, HBase is really good for, um, you know, scanning um, lots of read-only stuff with, um, you know, large, large table scans and two-dimensional uh, tables. Cassandra is... It has previously been discussed as being uh, very good with um, write-heavy workloads, but trading off uh, the consistency um, of of the of the environment, and you know that's better for analytical data or sensor data collection, where it will be consistent over time. Um, I think the the overall message that the uh, uh, the Hortonworks team involved here, um, and therefore the the team behind HBase, are very definitely tooting about, is that for um, four out of the uh, uh, out of the six tests, HBase came in a reasonable sort of percentage faster, so between between sort of twenty seven and fourteen percent quicker. Um, for one of the workloads, um, there was essentially no no real difference. Um, it's certainly within a, within a rounding error. Um, and then for the final workload, which was this read, modify, and write, uh, HBase was actually only 4% slower than Cassandra. Um, I think the one of the things that we're seeing here is um, people are more getting more and more familiar with one particular NoSQL engine and are in many cases just wanting to use that NoSQL engine and, and are starting to add additional functionality, additional tuning to and performance to the various areas that previously HBase, I think, certainly would have sh struggled quite, he quite quite badly at. And this is based on the new uh, HBase 112 release. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's there's some interesting interesting changes here to what I would have expected to have seen, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah, definitely the HBase guys have gotten a better a better community, I guess. More people are looking at this, playing with this and changing it. The one thing that surprised me most of all is uh, you have you're right with the the general consensus that Cassandra is better on write heavy and HBase on read heavy. Mm -hmm. But if I look at workload 8, which is uh, update heavy, well updates that's right, right? 
mm. two different rights. <laughs> yeah. And you see here that according to this little test, uh, HP is actually 27% faster on update heavy workloads. I know. That's uh, that, that surprised me. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the it was run on, you know, each of them will run on five-node clusters. And as always, like a benchmark is only as good as, you know, how closely it, it matches your exact workload. Now, to be fair, um, as is usually the case with um, the Hortonworks stuff, they have provided um, GitHub links to the test suite and the test suite uh, script. Mm-hmm. They do um, mention, you know, which optimization guides they've followed um, with uh, for, for Cassandra. So, you know, there's there's always a chance that there's some skew there. Yep. But again, the interesting thing is that they, that for HBase, all the settings were left at default except for the number of handlers per re- uh, region server that they bumped up to 120. Everything else was was left as is. And I think we're seeing um, this happening more and more. I think people are starting to uh, be a lot more careful about the out-of-the-box settings for some of these components. I don't. It's not as prevalent as I was hope, honestly. I think people still need to uh, do more on that. But I think we're starting to see better out-of-the-box settings for some of these components. I think this is a, a good example of that. Yeah, definitely for HBase, because I, recommend, I can remember it was oh gosh, three, four, five years ago when I first came into touch with HBase. It was horrible to get it actually running stable because all the little fiddly things had to had to touch on. Because it was yeah really in the yeah, alpha beta days. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just being able to just have decent performance out-of-the-box yeah, that's what it means when something is GA for me. When it's product, when it's production ready, means it just just it should just run. And yeah, yeah you can make yeah. it better, but it should just run reasonably okay out of the box. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I agree. Yeah, nice sign of maturity, definitely. Yeah. So well done, Team HBase. Yeah, and Cassandra <laughs> as well. I mean, Cassandra isn't bad. They're also no, up no, there no. still. So if people yeah. are investing in Cassandra. That doesn't mean you have made a bad choice at all. But it does kind of give uh, Cassandra people, Cassandra community, a little bit of a nudge. Hey, take a look at your stuff. <laughs> hey, and let's face it, as as we all know, competition is good, right? Yes. Because that means you know, the next the next release that I expect from Cassandra. HBase is yeah. going to be sorry from Cassandra yeah. is going to be that you know they're going to be again. Exactly, looking at looking at the areas where they can improve, and I expect to see blog posts that show them uh, uh, forging ahead, and then the HBase team will have to catch up. So, yeah, competition is good. Definitely. It's not capitalism, perhaps, but it's still working very well. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's it for you, right? That is it. Okay, Talk well, to us about kitchen appliances. Well, it's a little blog that I got in my LinkedIn uh, updates, I think. And it's called A Tale of a Compliance Kettle, <laughs> which kind of sparked my <laughs> my curiosity. And it's not really related to big data or Hadoop or anything like that, but it is related to something we've talked about before, which is security is important, but always make sure that your people are able to live with the security measures you put in place, because otherwise people are going to work around it. And this is a very nice practical example of how people bypass uh, security and still are perfectly compliant. 
Mm-hmm. And it's about a, a hacker camp, uh, SHA-2017, happened uh, last summer, where apparently there was a rule that no open fires were allowed, except if you wanted to cook on gas-powered fire stoves, whatever, that was fine. So a group of the guys just thought, okay, we want to have a campfire anyway, and we understand we don't have little uh, forest fires everywhere, so they actually rigged up a gas-powered fire thingy. So they thought, yeah, it's a gas fire, so we're fine. Well, one of the, I would call security people, but the people that minded the goings-on there came along and told them, hey, this is not compliant, because even though it's a gas fire thing, it's not used for cooking anything, and the idea is that gas-fired appliances for cooking are allowed. Okay, okay, the guys thought about this. Hmm, you know what? Let's put a kettle, an empty kettle, on top of a little fire. Hey, we're compliant now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a funny yeah. story. But complying, complying to the letter of the law, if not the spirit. Exactly, and that's also one of their, uh, com- the, the conclusion of the thing. Uh, our compliance kettle story is the perfect illustration of how security and compliance can be very different things, even when they try to achieve the same goals. So it's a very nice, very practical, everybody understands this story. And it really demonstrates the difference between the two. So I really liked it. And I promised the guys was going to shout, do a shout out on the podcast. So here it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't actually see whether or not they're using a proper regulator with this. But I must admit, the design is interesting. We're essentially looking at a, a large bowl of sand that they're pumping the gas up through. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't. There might be a regulator in there as well. Well, it was uh, professionally done because actually it's the guys that did the pyrotechnics on the stage that actually rigged this up. So uh, okay, all right. Must be I'll, I'll, give, I'll give them that. I'll give them that maybe. <laughs> but it does look quite cool. I must admit, I'm a big fan of fire. So yeah, two thumbs up from me. <laughs> well, I prefer fire behind a video screen, but. Uh... <laughs> I mean, monitors are heating up too. It's less these days with all of the compliancy for, hey, there's a word again, for power efficiency. But yeah. anyway, that was a little fun thing I wanted to throw in there. Um, but uh, I think that's it for today, unless you have anything to add. That's it from me. In that case, that is all the time you have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data news. As always, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, you can go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email at podcast at roaringelephant.org. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or other feedback you might have. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. See you then.